Our epistle lesson is taken from Peter's letters to the churches of Asia Minor, and we find this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And may God bless the reading of the word. Well, good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord with you today as we worship and praise God, to be here in the sanctuary and to see your faces and to know that if you cannot be with us this morning, that you are joining us through our virtual platform, it is good to have you with us as well. It has been an interesting weekend, not because of football, maybe that was interesting, but because we've been remembering 20 years since 9-11. 20 years have passed. And I, I want to start by asking you a question, and I want you to kind of turn and talk to those around you. Where were you when you heard the news of the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and 2001? Where were you? Talk to each other for a moment. Okay, I want to bring us back. Oh, very talkative group this morning. So when you think about where you were and what you were doing, these are, these are, this wasn't a kind of an event that makes an imprint on our life. On our individual lives, it makes a, it makes a marker in our memory. It's, it's a marker. It's also a marker for our country, for the world. And that's what these events do. Now, I was not alive when JFK was assassinated. Some of you may have been. You may recall where you were when you heard the word. Maybe you recall Robert Kennedy being assassinated, MLK being assassinated. Maybe you recall where you were when the, the lunar landing and those first steps on the surface of the moon. I, I actually remember the newscast of that. Very small. It's probably my earliest memory of a news story. These are the kind of events that really make an impression. They imprint upon us and they inform our faith. And our faith informs these memories. And I want us to hang on to that notion about how this interplay between our memory and our faith, how they both are informative of one another. And let's go back to Mark chapter 12 and revisit that parable. This was a, 
a very clever and a strong indictment against the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and not just of his day, but of all the preceding days, throughout the memory of the, of, of, of the, of the temple. When he, when he begins to tell this story about this planter who, who is representing God, in this vineyard who's what's representing the, the religion and the faith community of, of Israel, ancient Israel, Jesus tells a story of these tenants, these workers in the vineyard who are sharing the labor and share, supposedly sharing the fruits of their labors with the planter. And so when the planter has planted the vineyard and he's built up the wall and he has a watchtower and he has a wine press, he then leaves it into the, into the care, the loving care of the tenants. And then when he sends his servants, his slaves, to receive his due, they're beaten, they're insulted, and they're killed, one after the other. These represent the prophets who came to proclaim the prophetic word of God. And the tenants, the religious leaders, insulted, beat, and killed them, one after the other. Until finally, the planter says, I'll send my beloved son. Surely they will respect the planter's son. And when the son arrives at the vineyard, the tenants decide they should kill him too. And then all that's left will be theirs. The vineyard will be there. The fruits of the vineyard will be theirs. This, of course, is Jesus, the Son of God, whom God sends to Israel. And the leaders and the priests and the scribes of Israel reject him. And they insult him, and they beat him, and they kill him. And then Jesus says that what will the planter do? He will turn to others and they will inherit. The vineyard will become theirs. These others are those outside of the religious system of Judaism. They're the Gentiles. They're the, the lesser. They're, they're, they're the dogs from last week. Do you remember the dogs from last week? That's who's this being turned over to. It's going to be turned over to those who will receive the Son without insulting, beating, or killing Him. Receive the Son as the planter's Son, as God's Son. Will put their belief and faith in the Son. And the Son will become the cornerstone. The stone that's been rejected becomes the cornerstone for the new vineyard, the new faith community, the church. 
Peter picks up with this whole notion, a notion that's been riding and woven through the Old Testament scriptures, through the gospel, and into the letters of Peter. When he picks up this whole notion of Jesus as the cornerstone, he's talking about a spiritual house, that God is building a spiritual house out of living stones. We are the living stones. Those who will receive, believe, place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The cornerstone, the precious stone that has been rejected by all others throughout time, through our memory. Our faith tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, the cornerstone of the church, the cornerstone of this community of faith. And God is building this wonderful and precious and beautiful spiritual house. See, when Peter writes this letter, he writes it to the five provinces, Roman provinces in Asia Minor. And as he writes it, he's writing to churches, home churches, small churches that are undergoing persecution. They're having to endure. They're having to persevere. Persecution from all angles. They're being, the Jewish Christians are being kicked out of synagogues. They're being ostracized in their community. The, the, the Roman provinces, the governors, have regional persecutions against the churches. That's what they face. And that's what they begin to question. Is all of this worth it? What is the point? Can't we just go back to the way it was? Before this quote-unquote cornerstone? I mean, can't we just all get along together? Why, why do I have to undergo such persecution, such insults, such beatings, and face death because of what I believe in, who I believe in, where I put my faith and my trust? Who I say is Lord. And Peter he writes them to encourage them. He writes to say, persevere. Cling to the cornerstone. Cling to this cornerstone that is the foundation and the support, the structural support for the walls of this spiritual house that God is building. If you want to be part of God's community, we have to cling. We have to hang on for dear life and any hope in this life to Jesus Christ. Because you know, when things like 9-11 happen on this grand scale, nearly 3,000 people die at the hands of terrorism and evil, the world can look awfully scary. The world can look awfully dark. And we can clamor and we can cling to anything that we think might give us a little bit of hope, a little bit of light. And that's what those early churches were doing. And it was a threat. It was a grave risk for the church that these churches may reach out and grab a hold of the wrong thing, the wrong person, the wrong notion, the wrong idea, the wrong political party, 
any political party, anything other than Jesus Christ will lead to destruction, will lead to darkness and despair. Because only Jesus Christ can provide us, can provide the cornerstone, the structure, the foundation, the beauty, the power and the strength to give us any hope in this world. When 9-11 occurred, I was sitting in Bishop's Hall, 311 on Emory's campus, sitting in an Old Testament class. It was being taught by Dr. John Hayes, and he was lecturing, and I was on the front row. I loved the front row in John Hayes' class because I just wanted to cling to every word. John Hayes was one of the most interesting scholars I have ever, ever known. He lived on a farm just outside of Auburn, and he drove into Atlanta every day. And he might show up with a dirty shirt and, and, and dirt and, or whatever under his fingernails. He lived on a working farm. He had a bull. It was one of his pride and joys was this large bull, and he would feed the bull carrots from his mouth. Put the carrot in his mouth, and the bull would eat it. Now, I don't know much about bulls. I've only seen them on TV. But I'm not going to get in a pen with a bull. John Hayes was busy teaching Old Testament when a student came and whispered in his ear. And he paused for a moment. And then he told us all that class was being dismissed. In fact, all of the classes on Emory's campus were being dismissed early because of these unfolding events in New York City. You see, there were a, a lot of students at Emory's campus that were from New York in the vicinity, and many of them just wanted to go call home. They wanted to find out what to do. They wanted to find out what was happening. And none of us knew. I, my, first, my first thought when I heard this was, what? What kind of accident happens like this? What, what air traffic controller messed up this bad? What pilot got so confused would fly into a skyscraper? And so we all just kind of drifted out of Bishop's Hall, room 311, and down the steps and across the walkway into the student commons and just gathered around TV screens to watch news reports. And then it wasn't long before that second plane struck, and all we, everybody, everybody was in disbelief. No one knew what was happening. Then there was the Pentagon, and then there was Pennsylvania, and then panic. I remember going to where I was staying during the week, and I packed up everything I had there, and I loaded it in our minivan, and I drove back to Dothan that afternoon. And when I arrived, I, 
I met with the other, uh, the clergy that were meeting and the staff, and we were trying to figure out what, what do we do? What's our reaction? What's our response to what is unfolding in front of us? What, what are we supposed to do? How do we to be the church when we don't know what's happening? When people are afraid and anxious, when they don't feel safe, and nothing feels firm, what are we to do? And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. We didn't know what else to do. But the world does that to us. The world and life has a way to throwing tragedy and chaos and darkness and violence and terror all around that confuses the masses and confuses individuals through national, natural tragedies or individual and personal tragedy. It's what the world does. The world's really good at it. And the world just doesn't care how it makes us feel. And the world really only cares about how we respond. And so that's what Peter is writing to the church. Is to be the church, be this community of faith, be this spiritual house, these living stones that will be a light to the world. Cling to this cornerstone with everything you have because nothing else, no one else, not an idea, not a notion, only God through Jesus Christ do we have this spiritual house, this community, this church. So I ask us, as we enter this sermon series called Resetting, we are looking at resetting our life after this episode of COVID-19 and the surge. It's changed. It's changed how we live, how we live at home and at work and how we are a community of faith together. We've lost loved ones. We've lost friends. We've faced illness. We've faced the unknown and the disbelief. Where were you when you first heard about COVID-19? Did it seem real? Did it seem too far away? Did it seem like somebody else's problem? A year and a half later, it's still a problem here. But we have these memories. We have this faith. 
And we know that by looking back on, on 9-11 and looking back on JFK's assassination and looking back on whatever has happened in our life, and we can look back with faith and know that God was with us even in that moment to now. God is steadfast. God is strong. God is patient. God is kind. God is love. God is our hope. And so when we face episodes, when we face seasons, events that mark our memories, that may cause us to question our faith, that may cause us to reach out to something practical, something other than Christ as our cornerstone. as our faith. We fall, we stumble, and we find ourselves hopeless and in the dark. But on the flip side, when all this stuff happens and whatever happens to us, when we cling to that faith, when we hold fast to Jesus Christ, we find ourselves being fulfilled, being realized, being living stones. And that is the good news. That no matter what the world throws at us, no matter the persecution, no matter the catastrophe, the tragedy, no matter the terror, the horror, or the violence, we have hope and we have peace. We have a future. Because and only because... Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal used to say, well, I like I know Blaise, I don't really know him since he died in the 17th century. But he wrote that the human heart has a hole in it. It's a void. And it's in the shape of the divine. It's in the shape of God. And we will spend lifetimes trying to fill that void, to fulfill ourselves, to make ourselves whole. And we will grab anything, grasp anything, hold anything that we think will fill the void. Pascal knows, we know, Peter knows, the gospel writer of Mark knows that only one thing will fill that divine void, and that is the cornerstone. And when, that, when we believe and we receive Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as our Lord and our Savior, we find ourselves fulfilled, whole. We find hope. We find a future. We find strength and a light in a dark, scary world. And for that, I pray that we all find, that we all proclaim, that we all make ourselves available and receptive living stones on this church that God is creating in the world that will be a light to the world so that all will know that there's one cornerstone. There's one source of true faith. There's one source of, true, of truth. And that's Jesus Christ. 
So when you think back on the tragedies of life, when you think back on 9-11, and you remember, hold those memories that are informed by your faith. And let your faith be informed by the memory of God being there. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.